<clears throat> so with that, let's look at Micah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. See, the first reason that Micah gives us is that this is the word of God. Here, Micah doesn't stand before the people and say, this is what I have to say to you. This is my opinion. This is what I judge to be true. Instead, he stands there and says, this is the word of the Lord. He doesn't stand on his own authority. He's not speaking his own words or from his own mind. He is speaking the words of God. He stands there as a herald, as a messenger. God, who actually spoke life into existence. God, who created life. Who time and time again has spoken into history to guide and to lead and to direct and to redeem His people is now speaking again in Micah. These words are not man's. Micah is not contriving certain words to manipulate people into fear or guilt-driven obedience. A lot of people want to say that's what Scripture is all about, is men trying to, 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 share, to corral people, to manipulate them into doing what they want. That's not what Mike is doing here. These words are grounded in the mind and will of the one true and holy God of the universe. The one who owns it all. The one who rules over the heavens and the earth is now speaking. The sinless, perfect God who, though he ought to have cast aside his people, but continues to patiently, lovingly, graciously redeem his people, is speaking again, this time through the prophet Micah. These are God's words, my friends. God has spoken, and we, as his creation, ought to be listening. And God gave Micah three oracles, three messages that he was to deliver. Chapters 1 and 2 make up the first message, 3 through 5 the second, and chapters 6 and 7 the third. And in them, God intermingles coming judgment over the rampant sin of his people with these precious promises of hope-giving restoration. Here we see the justice and the mercy of God meet. Micah is going to reveal to us the necessity that wrongs are rebuked and justly condemned. Micah conveys to us that God's desire is to see His people restored. Micah reveals to us that God wants His character to be known. His sovereignty, His righteousness, His holiness, His patience, His mercy, all of that is revealed in Micah. And Micah discloses to us, God's promise that He would send the Good Shepherd, born in Bethlehem, the Christ who would rule God's people with the strength and majesty of the Lord. God's Word, declared in Micah, contains both eye-opening, soul-searching warnings with deep, heartwarming promises. These are warnings that are so dire, but precious Uh, but promises that are so sweet that they would actually change the course of history. Did you realize that? 
Micah's preaching actually changed the course of history. did it in two ways. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'm going to go ahead. In, in Micah's first message, he predicted that the northern kingdom, Samaria, would actually be destroyed. It would fall. And a few years later, he actually saw that prophecy fulfilled when God sent the Assyrians to actually decimate that northern kingdom. He saw that happen with his eyes. God's word worked through him, and it was fulfilled. But he not only prophesied against Samaria, he also warned the southern kingdom as well, Judah. You see, once the Assyrians had destroyed Samaria, they then turned their eyes on Judah. And they began to to seek to destroy Judah as well. And by 701 B.C., they were right up at the gates, threatening the demise of Jerusalem. But Jeremiah points out something that's pretty amazing in Jeremiah 26. See, Hezekiah, the king of Judah at that time, heard Micah's prophecy. He saw that God had fulfilled his promise to destroy Samaria, and and Hezekiah repented. He believed Micah's message. He pleaded with God. He trusted in God. And the result was God delivered them from the hands of the Assyrians. Though they were right up on the door and there was no... There was, there was no changing the Syrians' mind. God sent plagues. God sent angels to destroy the Assyrians so that God's people would be delivered. And so these, in these two ways, God used, God spoke through Micah to change the course of history, both in the destruction of Samaria, but also in the deliverance and the reform of Judah. So these are amazingly powerful, life-transforming words. So I pray that when you hear these words, you take them for what they are. You take them as the Word of God. I pray that when you listen to us preach, that you're not just listening to the suggestions or recommendations of man, but you're compelled by God's Word. This is God speaking. And I pray that this same God who has acted in history would speak through His Word, through His Messenger, in such a way that your lives might be changed. The course of your histories might be changed. And I pray that God's Word would result in your redemption, your deliverance, your transformation, as it did when Micah spoke to Hezekiah. Friends, God is real. And He speaks in power. But secondly, He speaks into history. Again, Micah 1.1 tells us this, that the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. God spoke through a real man at a specific place at a specific time. Given the fact that Hezekiah listened to him, most scholars probably believe that Micah was a professional prophet who delivered his oracles to the people of Judah, probably from Jerusalem. But it's interesting to note that, that uh, he focuses on his hometown. If you want to flip to the next slide, I've included a couple of maps just to, to help us become better acquainted with the time and the setting um, so that we can understand what's going on. Micah prophesied from Judah. Okay, you see Judah right up here. And Moresheth was his hometown. This is where archaeologists believe that Moresheth was located about six miles from Lashish. But what's amazing about this is that when Micah prophesies, he's not, he's not standing in a remote place 
um, casting judgment like on a distant kingdom of some place that he has no relation, no connection. If you read in his first oracle, you see that Gath, Lashish, Shafir, Merisheth, Aksib, Adulam, Jerusalem, his own hometown, Morsheth, they were all mentioned in his warnings. Micah is not speaking to people he doesn't know about. He's not speaking as someone who's standing there, holier than thou, unrelated, unconnected from anybody that uh, he's speaking to. Instead, this is intimate. Micah would know these people. He was, they were citizens of the same land. They only lived a few miles away from one another. So when Micah gives these warnings, again, this is not some self-righteous, unrelated prophet who is condemning people that he doesn't know. No, he's speaking to his friends. He is intimately pleading with them to repent, to turn from their wickedness, and to follow God. And so you see that there's deep heartfeltness in Micah's word and what Micah is saying. And we need to catch that if we're truly going to understand and believe Scripture. It was this this very relation, the fact that he knew these people that led him to say, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people. Micah knows them. Micah loves them. But Micah is faithful to God's message. Micah tells them the truth. If we turn to the next slide, I I, want to point out the, the political situation at the time. If you look here, this this large swath of green is the Assyrian Empire. This was the superpower of the day. Nobody was bigger or badder than the Assyrian Empire. Nobody. Nobody could hold a candle to them. Not only did they have the biggest army, but they were ruthless and they were violent. And as they made their way across, conquering and devouring different territories, they were, they were just absolutely wicked in their attempts to do so. They thought the best way for them to, to gain victory was by to just utterly decimate and ruin certain cities. So they would come up to a, one city, they'd lay siege on it, and it would just be atrocious, the things that they would do to these people. And they would do that so that when they went to the next city... They could say, well, you heard about what we did to the city back here. And those people would then throw down their weapons. And so all the Assyrians had in mind was to conquer. And there they were. You can kind of see that one arrow. They're sweeping down through Syria. And they make their way to Israel. Israel is, is Samaria, by the way, the northern kingdom. And as I said, uh, Micah had prophesied that Israel would fall. And in 722 it does. And then Judah almost falls in 701 because Assyria is making their way down to them. And so this is, again, this is important to kind of think about the situation that is taking place. I mean, both Judah and and Israel were insignificant compared to the superpowers, and they're ready to, to crush them. And so these people are left in a very desperate situation. What do we do? We have two options. We can trust in God 
And hopefully he'll deliver us. We'll stay unified as a nation. And maybe he'll redeem this puny nation from this massive empire. Or we can make some political compromises so that maybe we can stay in the land. Maybe we can continue to exist as a people. Maybe that's really what God wants. So maybe that's what we ought to do. And at the time, they were experiencing some real prosperity as a nation. You know, if they actually go against God to create some alliances, not only might they be able to save their skin, but they also might be able to keep some of their wealth as well. And so they're motivated materially, as well as just saving their own skin. And it's easy for us, when we look at the situation, when we try to read Scripture, to kind of be very judgmental towards the people. It's easy for us to look at them and say, how could they do that? Don't they realize how God has continued to deliver them time and time again? And yet, look at them. Here they are trusting in nations when God has has done all this work. God should destroy them. And we feel kind of self-righteous about that. Well, put yourself in the situation for a minute. Put yourself there and think about what you would do in that situation when, when these massive armies are getting ready to come in and tear you apart. Would you really stand firm, trust in the Lord? Or would you be really tempted to make those political compromises? You see, we're much more like the Israelites than we think we are. We've got much more to learn about them than we think we do. So, this is a big deal. You know, are they going to trust in Judah? Or are they going to make these political alliances, these compromises, to save wealth in their own skin? But these political compromises, these compromises and obedience, inevitably lead to ethical compromises. You can't have one without the other. I mean, they're, they're inextricably related. Increased alliances always equaled increased immorality and idolatry. Pacts that were made to try to keep peace always res- um, or to increase the wealth of a nation always end up leading to the rich selling out the poor and the marginalized. It never worked out the way they wanted it to. And it always led them away from God. So what does this have to do with us? I mean, I've mentioned the context. What does this have to do with us? Well, it ought to sound kind of familiar. I mean, do we know of a country that's experienced a lot of prosperity? Do we live in such a country? I think we do. Do we know a nation that has made political decisions that have led to ethical compromise? I think we do. Do we know a nation in which the people in power make decisions for their own personal gain rather than what's best for all? Again, this sounds pretty familiar. And do we know a nation in which the people are more focused on themselves than doing what is best for their fellow man? You see, when we look at it, when we really break it down... Micah has a lot more to say to us than we think it does. This is a relevant passage. And the question is, will we, like Micah's peers, seek our own will, or or will we seek the will of God? Will we make decisions that we think will give us what we want, or will we make the hard choice to follow God because it's for our best, as unlikely or as impossible as it may seem? So as God has spoken into history through Micah, he asks us the same pointed questions that he asks his peers. Who are you going to trust in? 
Who are you going to rely upon? Whose will are you seeking? Yours or God's? Are you living as if this is your world and you are God? Or are you willing to submit yourself to the one to whom it rightfully belongs? God has revealed himself. He has spoken into history. And he has done so, thirdly, concerning his people. Again, in one one, this was the word of the Lord which Micah saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, i.e. God's people. You know, if you ask most people, again, why they don't read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, they'll probably tell you it's because they have no idea what it means. They have no idea how to understand it. And prophecy, like Micah, can be particularly difficult to comprehend and then apply to one's life. I mean, this actually led the great reformer Martin Luther to say this of the prophets. They have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next, so that you cannot make head or tail of them, or see what they're getting at. It's funny, I I think that Luther was exaggerating, he had a a tendency to do that, but he's right in that prophecy can be difficult to understand. But this is God's word concerning his people. And if you and I are going to to be considered God's people, we need to know what concerns him about us. <clears throat> you know, fortunately for us, we, we have what Martin Luther didn't have. We, we have a lot of helps that we might be able to use to understand more of Scripture. Uh, one thing that I would point out to you as a really helpful tool is the ESV Study Bible. As we make our way through books of the Bible, this is a tremendous resource to kind of give you the setting, kind of give you some helpful understanding, some practical application on how to apply these texts uh, to our lives. And so it's a great resource to help us, unlike Martin Luther, to make heads or tails of what these prophets are saying to us. So unless you read Micah 1.16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair, and you decide to go and stop by Walgreens to get some clippers on your way home so that you can go and do likewise, you know, I would highly recommend that you go ahead and pick up resources so that you can truly learn and understand and apply God's word. We have to understand first how God is speaking directly to Samaria and to Jerusalem. But within that historical, specific context, God has a message for us. Whether you realize it or not, God is concerned about you. And he's speaking through his word to you. You There are a number of specific themes that we can mention in Micah which we'll unpack over the next couple of months. But but God's message to you through Micah can be summed up in one verse. And I want to look at that as we close. Chapter 6, verse 8, is the heart of God's message through the prophet Micah. It is the message that is timeless, relevant, and is deeply personal. It says this, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the main message of Micah. This is the main theme that he is trying to get across. And I pray that over these next few weeks, this will take root in your life. Will you follow God? 
Will you desire what is good? Will you do justice? Will you love kindness? Will you walk humbly with God? You know, this can only be done through Jesus Christ. The only hope of, we have of doing what God requires, of being good, of truly doing justice, of truly loving kindness, of truly walking humbly with God, is if we have His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus came and He gave His life for us. By His shed blood, our sins, those things that separate us eternally from God, that keep us from being able to walk humbly with God, have been removed, have been nailed to the cross. And because He is raised again, we have the hope of not only a restored relationship with God, but we have the hope of newness of life. We've received the Holy Spirit if we repent and believe and trust in Him. And that allows us, that Holy Spirit, slowly, progressively, gradually transforms our lives so that we can do what is good, so that we can follow the will of God, so that we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God as we submit ourselves to follow Christ daily. So I hope that can be said of you today. I hope that that can be said of all of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. God, that you, though being just and holy, and us being sinners, eternally separated from you, have in patience and kindness and in great mercy continued to speak to your people through your word. Through scripture, you have spoken into history concerning your people. God, we, we don't deserve that kindness. We don't deserve that grace and that mercy and that love. But we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us. And God, we pray that by your Spirit, we might walk in that. To do good. To do your will. To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with you for all eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.